Welcome back to Eldritch Girl, uh, where we are serialising The Crows, which is all rights reserved to CM Rosens, and the theme tune is by Gemma Cartmel. The illustrations in the books are by Thomas Brown. You can buy the books from Amazon, Smashwords, Apple, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, anywhere ebooks are sold, the paperback from Amazon only, um, and you can also get the ebook files from my Kofi shop directly. And if you do that, it means I get all of the profit and not like a small percentage of it. <laughs> so feel free to hop over to my Kofi shop. Um, and if you don't want to buy the books and my short stories that I also have out, um, then feel free to just drop me a tip in the tip jar on Kofi if you want. And that's kofi.com forward slash cmrosens. So we're on to chapter 17 and Carrie's time is running out rapidly. Um, this is the 11th of May, but the night of the 11th of May. Um, and we've got content warnings for bird, death, more body horror, murder and Ricky Porter being Ricky Porter. We have a pretty short chapter this time. So um, I might fill that out at the end uh, with answering some questions um, and filling in some Q&A stuff. So uh, I'll do that after the theme tune at the end. Enjoy the chapter. Chapter 17. Revenge Served Cold. In which Ricky finds a tongue and all hell breaks loose. 11th of May, night. Ricky crouched down in the flower bed of the residential home, watching the lights wink off one at a time. Let Carrie have her fun tonight and investigate the History Society at her leisure. He had other ideas. The photograph had been enlightening. There was only one person he could think of who tied the History Society together in such a neat group. Shame it had taken her a week to ask him, but then she'd had other things on her mind. As he waited, the magpies came home to roost. Three for a funeral. As omens went, it was as subtle as a brick through a window. The lack of nuance was insulting. Finally, guided by the running threads and the weird coming to a natural cross-stitch, he strolled down the sloping grass towards Harry Bishop's room. The glass didn't bother him. He stood watching the old man's shape in bed, huddled under his quilt, frail as a child. He dropped his hood, the back lips parting and the tendrils regurgitated upwards, vibrating against his bones. They spread over the glass, scratching along the pane. Tap, tap, tap. The glass cracked. Ricky saw the figure tremble and wondered what it would be like to get off on fear, to truly enjoy it the way Uncle David did or even his father. George Porter loved the sour taste of terror, that bitter taint to his meat. He loved the way the eyes widened, the pulse quickened, the rush of adrenaline pushing the quarry to greater feats to run faster, climb higher, to fight for their life. Ricky had watched his cousins whipped into frenzies at the mere whiff of it. What would it feel like to be the old man in the bed, praying this was a nightmare, praying the window barrier would keep him out, hearing the crunch as the shards fell to pieces, seeing the figure with gorgon antlers stepping through a mist of powdered glass? This is all her, the things she would ask. Let it go. He heard the old man whimpering. Probably wouldn't get much sense out of him. He focused, looking around the room. Glass crunched under his trainers. His attention was arrested by the shelves along the opposite wall. Harry Bishop's booked. books were packed end to end, books he had never been allowed to own. But this man had a small library within his feeble grasp. Ricky couldn't help himself. 
The tendrils floated around him as he turned to face them, drinking in the titles and the elderly spines, recalling summer days with Mrs. Antram, who taught him his letters at the library, the kind woman too bloody-minded to be afraid of George and Letty Porter. That had been her fatal mistake. "'You want to be book-smart? Eat the smart part of her,' his father said, standing over him with a fork. "'Eat it all, every bit of it.' He kept her keys, though, and slipped back to the library after hours while his parents groaned pearl-green, safely bedridden after what he'd put in their food. A hard, bitter lump rose up, seething and hot. "'No!' Harry Bishop croaked, wheezing. "'Not my books!' Ricky turned. Tendrils trailed along the covers behind him, licking at poetry and prose. The taste of their jackets stirred up flint-edged greed, cutting deep into his viscera. "'Where's the bloody tongue, Harry?' he asked, gruff and grating. "'That's what I want, just the tongue.' "'Whoa, what tongue?' Harry Bishop had found his. He was quivering under the quilt, clawed hands shaking. "'Seriously?' Ricky pinched the bridge of his nose. "'Can we skip this bit and get to the part where you just hand it over?' I know you, Harry croaked suddenly, levering himself painfully off the pillows. Richard Edwin Porter, you little gobshite. What do you want with that, hey? Beverly would tan your hide for you. She ain't here, is she? Ricky snapped, knocking Hardy off the shelf. Pretentious arsehole. The volume thudded to the carpet, making Harry wince. Now he recognised his intruder as someone he had known since birth, his fear ebbed into contempt. You watch where you're putting those things and mind my first editions, Harry snapped, taking a gasp of angry air. Illiterate little sod, you wait if I could get out of this bed, scaring an old man. The dig at his lack of schooling struck Ricky's sensitive parts like an armour-piercing arrow. His tendrils lashed the air. He could feel his skin splitting under his clothes, his other form straining against the fleshy seams. Gran ain't here. Where's the fucking tongue, Harry? The little girl's tongue, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Who else would the colonel stick his neck out for if not for you? Harry twitched. What's the matter with you? He fumbled for the bedside reading lamp, clicking it on. A cool evening breeze pushed the broken glass across the carpet. He squinted in the amber light, puzzling it out. Dear Lord, it's that house, isn't it? Ricky stiffened in denial. What about her? It is. It's that house. That's it. Harry's crooked finger jabbed in his direction. It changes a man, that vengeful place. The Rickard woman woke it up, didn't she? Like I was afraid of, and it's got under your skin. Don't think I can't tell. I wrote the book on it. What if it is? Ricky tilted his chin. What if she does want her revenge? Do you blame her? Lying there a ruin, a broken, tormented thing? What do you expect? She chose me, and she'll reward me too. Harry Bishop laughed in cracked, wheezing gasps, coughing up mirth. Idiot boy! You never could see what was in front of you, all that far sight turning your brain. Fairwood won't give up the pendle stone to you, it's using you, can't you see that? Once it's got what it wants, it'll reject you, keep you locked out for good. This missile, well aimed, stung worse than the first. Ricky changed. He couldn't help it. He ripped off his clothes before he ruined them irrevocably, human skin shredding into raw bloody rags with a pulsing pressure beneath. He let himself be seen in all his writhing beauty. His eyes opened onto the weird myriad legion. 
Harry gagged on nothing, light years away. Christ, he moaned, but Ricky wasn't that sort of saviour. Where's the tongue, Harry? He tore the truth from Harry Bishop's brain, taking it by the corner and ripping it out of his memory. His attention turned to an antique drinks cabinet in the shape of a globe, lovingly painted but sun-bleached and cracked with age. A tendril went to work on the tiny keyhole, cunningly hidden by the pink lines traversing the north coast of Africa. Jesus! He isn't coming, Harry. It's just us. The globe, under pressure from the suckers soft as gloves, groaned in rusty protest as he lifted the top half and the hollow innards gazed back at them for the first time in decades. Founder. He reached in and took out an anatomist's jar in which something unpleasant floated. Do it yourself, Harry managed, voice enfeebled with terror, eyes streaming in the lamplight. Kill me yourself, Richard, you bloody coward. Christ, boy, what the hell have you done? The thing that was Ricky was not inclined to tell. Vengeance was not his to take. He was an agent of fate, not its assassin. The jar smashed on the floor, filling the room with a stench of formaldehyde and botanical preservatives, something tangy on the air, greasy with static. The tongue flopped to the carpet, fish-like, and combusted. Good night, Harry. He was gone before the nurses got there, leaving the old bookseller to the fumes and the small fire blossoming on the floor. It started softly. An owl ruffled its feathers on the roof and hopped into flight, disturbed by a noise beneath it. The attic windows rattled in their frames. The murder of crows took flight in haste, a cawing storm of flapping wings against the moon, a bad omen. And then, ringing out through the house and its grounds, swelling from the coal cellar to the upper rooms and bursting into the sky, came a roar of pure, ferocious, vengeful spite. The binding spell was broken. They were all going to pay. Carrie and her merry company left the pub and headed for the centre. You're coming back to ours, right? Wes asked Tina, his mask now replaced, giving him a dashing air of mystery. Charlie made me promise I'd ask. Tina played coy. Text her, give her a ring, ask her yourself, Wes encouraged her as they got closer to the front of the taxi queue. Anyone else? The more the merrier. Mercy screeched with scandalised laughter. We're good, thanks, Carrie said, realising he was serious. Wes shrugged, passing around his hip flask. Carrie took a swig of it without thinking, trying not to think about real-life post-hangover, when bills would have to be paid and the garden needed more attention, and the fact that there was a homicidal ghost child in her house. But Fairwood was real, the small piece of it warm and solid, a reminder that the strange and miraculous could and did happen. Mercy was still talking happily about anything and everything, and Tina was trying to get a word in edgeways. When they all went their separate ways, she would be going home to Fairwood's anchored foundations, and the man-eating soothsayer in the cellar. A warm glow flowed through her, syrup thick. They shared a taxi, Mercy, Wes and Tina giving Carrie cash to cover their part of the ride. They dropped Mercy off first, still breathlessly chatting, then Wes and Tina a few streets away in an upmarket new-build cul-de-sac, then around to Redditch Lane. Carrie was feeling the wine now, and whatever Wes had passed around. Never trust a porter. The ride was soothing, lulling her to sleep. Halfway home, she was rudely jolted out of her drunken drowsiness. 
A black ragged shape came hurtling out of the darkness too fast for the driver to react. It collided with the windscreen, smashing square into the centre. The driver slammed on his brakes. Carrie lurched forwards, the seatbelt jarring against her chest. The driver let out a violent ejaculation in Arabic, thumping both hands on the wheel. His small hand-painted Hamza swung from the rearview mirror, frantically warding off the evil eye, but not, apparently, direct hits from foreign objects. You all right? He checked his mirrors, turning on the taxi's hazards and dipping the headlights so as not to dazzle any other cars. Better check it hasn't smashed the glass, he said. Carrie sat frozen, blinking at the feathers stuck to the glass. It's a bad omen, she whispered, reaching for the piece of tile. So this Q&A um, is basically the questions that I got asked back in uh, December of 2020. Um, so I'm just giving you some of those. I've done a lot of author showcases and I've done some uh, Q&A on those as well. And I've done some Q&A recently for Romancing the Gothic um, and my book launch. And that is on Romgoth Sam's YouTube channel. So do check those out. Um, and check out mine as well, because I do have a YouTube channel with um, some videos of me answering questions and um, some little Pagamon C videos and things like that. So if you want to check that out, it's obviously CM Rosens on YouTube. Just uh, search for me. Um, but enjoy these. Uh, enjoy the questions and answers. Um, so again, like with most of my bonuses, I've got the transcripts of those on my blog. Um, I've got the paraphrase of these Q&A uh, questions on my blog and I've linked to it for this blog post that I've done for this particular episode. So you should be able to find that quite easily. Here we go. Okay, so the Q&A. Um, the first question is, where did you get your ideas for the story and the characters? Okay, so the first draft was my first attempt at a sort of fluffy mystery romance. Um, I don't think it went very well. <laughs> um, but most of my first drafts are totally different to the finished products anyway. And I just sort of um, had vague ideas about where I wanted it to go. I totally pants that. And um, I kind of wanted... I've always wanted uh, to write a kind of world like Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere or American Gods, um, where you have a sense of magic in the mundane. Um, so something very familiar, but also something very um, uncanny about it and magical about it. And the idea that you could step out of your house and just fall into this 
really weird wonderland. Um, I always love those sorts of stories. And I've always wanted to do one. So that's where Pagamon Sea finally came in after trying to do that since I was like, I don't know, like eight or something. Um, so yeah, so that's that. Um, as far as characters and things go, I think that's again, a lot of exploration writing, lots of different ideas. Um, a lot of them uh, come out of the settings as well. So I, I think setting first, and like who would live there? Um, so the house is kind of inspired by Shirley Jackson's Hill House, the House on Haunted Hill, uh, Stephen King's Rose Red, Salem's Lot, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. Um, but I wanted to subvert the evil sentient building narrative and create something else. I wanted to also explore elements of my own mental health journey and gothicize my own experiences and experiences of other people close to me and I kind of built up and Ricky is basically that that's that's what Ricky is and then once I've got all the ideas and the experimental writing and all of that it just um it goes through the editing process the beta process and I just pick out themes that I think work best with the finished product with the book as a product and not as um something that I wanted to write so everything gets sharpened and things get thrown out and and it just comes out that really yeah what's next for Pagamon C okay so um the next novel is 13th I'm going to focus then on the project that I've got going on at the moment which is Eldritch Girls which is a spin-off um of uh, of sort of the well it, it's a, a spin-off of the family <laughs> um so that one's set in brighton around about early early 2016 um so that one's uh eldritch girls just want to have fun which is the first first novel in what will probably be a trilogy or we'll see um and I'm writing that with Nita Pan, so at Nita Pan Writes. Um, I've got a werewolf thriller uh, that I want to write, uh, where you get to explore Barker Crescent. Um, that's going to be set right about the same time that The Crows is, so you have that kind of interlocking, big picture idea, uh, like Discworld really, where um, I want you to have standalone novels and kind of mini themes or series that you can kind of trace um so like werewolf series and the porters have their own thing and like other i've got loads of ideas for other parts of the town and other places we can go and um the idea the hope is that you won't have to read them all in any particular order you can just pick them up and get into them uh at whatever point you you jump in so that's the idea um so i've got ideas for future books with ricky and wes and katie and the family and that kind of thing fairwood house so yeah so so there will be lots of things coming but the next things i think after 13th would be eldritch girls and real meat which is the werewolf one I've also got a novella in the works as well, though, which is um, The Reluctant Husband, and that's coming out in Spooky by Association, which is an anthology that Nita Pan is um, collating, editing. 
and uh, so that is the story of Nathan Porter and how he met and married Deirdre Wend. So it's the genesis of the Porters as a clan. Um, so that's coming out the end of 2021. I'm now starting a novella um, that I might query. I don't know. Um, and it's uh, sort of the Eglantine Pritchard story uh, set in 1943. And that one's kind of a dark fairy tale, I guess. So it's not related to uh, the events of 1958 and, uh, you know, so set a bit before that. So you get to meet Eglantine Pritchard as a character. And that's Tina Harris's uh, formidable witchy great aunt who cursed Fairwood House as far as the Pendles are concerned and that clan. So, um, yeah, so lots of stuff. I've got lots of stuff going on at the moment. And we'll just see... Uh, what I get on with. <laughs> <laughs> Who won the flower show this year? <laughs> uh, well, the flower show 2020, a uh, bit controversial because it was nearly cancelled over lockdown. All the flower shows, like the RHS, so it was all cancelled. Um, but the judges did end up going around people's gardens on individually socially distanced walking circuits. Um, but the event was officially cancelled, but people did get honorary um, participation awards. Um, but there was no overall winner this year. Sorry, Mason, but it was less disappointing. <laughs> Mason's other question was, how are the vampire nightclubs faring in the age of social distancing? Not well. <laughs> so um, obviously all the nightclubs are closed of lockdown um vampire run cafes which are the 24-hour ones they're now not 24 hours obviously they're observing curfew rules so that's kind of screwed that up a bit takeaway only staff have been furloughed um vampires tend to have really good communal resources so they don't have to really worry about the funding to furlough staff but um it's actually that's not the issue um the issue is so there's this one club called the twilight which used to be called the twilight zone so if you're of a particular generation you'd still call it the zone but now it's changed hands and it's called the twilight or the twilight club or just twilight depending on which demographic you are i guess um so yeah, so Twilight has a really bad track record with underage clientele and non-consensual feeding and drink spiking with blood. Um, so it's no surprise that the vampires who are known to frequent this club are the same ones, now that the club is closed, who are engaging in very bad practice over lockdown because their main hunting grounds are um, sort of no longer uh, in, in, like, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, so they, they so bad practice would be um, to get a willing donor to come into your bubble and then not tell them that you're actually part of the nest. So you invite somebody over to be your donor over lockdown and then they actually end up in a situation where they're being rationed out across like this entire group rather than just you. So that's bad practice um also attacking dog walkers joggers people going on their walks and um, that they're allowed to, the daily exercise walks that we're allowed to do um so that's also bad practice so it's again so so yeah it's there's a correlation between the vampires who go to the twilight and those that have been defanged um and there's been a few cases where um vampires in pagamonsi have actually had their fangs ripped out 
um, as a like like a, a to be made an example of basically by the authorities. What's your favourite bit of folklore? Oh, um, I like a good death omen. Uh, <laughs> um, I like corpse candles. Um, I like a good black dog tale. Um, anything vampire related. I really love vampire folklore. Yeah, vampire lore and revenant lore. I think. Um, those are my favourites. Um, <laughs> another question by the same person. Thanks, Ken. Um, if you could go back in time and fight someone, who would you fight? Um, Bonnie Prince Charlie? Not for any particular reason. I just, I reckon I could take him. <laughs> uh, do you ever base your characters on real people? Okay, so um, if I want them to be realistic, then then yeah, I, I, I base them on at least the way real people behave or the way I've observed people behave or from personality traits I've seen in action or I have myself. Um, and I sometimes have people in mind for certain characters in terms of appearance or um, specific personality traits, but then other things take over as that character develops. So hopefully each character I write is their own character or their own person and they're not recognisable as the, uh, you know, as, as the real people that I was um, thinking of. How long on average does it take you to write a book? Um, so it depends. It, it, a first draft that I'm not planning, um, a first draft like that depends on if I'm in a stage of creative mania, I can bash that out in a few weeks. I've done it in like three to four weeks before for an 80k novel. I don't really sleep during that time or do anything else. Or it takes me a few months. Um, but I'd say about a year if you count in edits and revisions, um, beta readers to give people a, a chance to read and comment and then let it all settle and then do the revisions and do the redrafts and send it to an editor and then re-edit it myself and then yeah um formatting all of that might take a little bit longer but i'd say um on average it should be about 12 months for me any shorter and i think i'd pers i'd be a bit like i don't i i wouldn't be confident in the quality of it yeah are there any big things you decided to edit out of the crows <sighs> yes um, so when I originally wrote it, Mercy had point of view chapters, um, and there's one on my website that you can read. And so the way that Ricky got introduced originally was um, Lucretia's skeleton came out of the wishing well. So Lucretia, Lassa, uh, Lucretia Savant, so she was, um, or that wasn't, uh, so she was the one of the daughters who threw herself into the well um, back in the day, like I think in the interwar period or just after the First World War. But I kind of changed the, the timeline and I don't think she did that in the end in my, in, in, in my, in my whole headcanon of the history of the house. Um, but anyway, um, I had this idea that this kind of, I just, it was more of an image really, just like this really fun idea of a skeleton being washed out or flooded out of the well 
um, encourage opening the curtains in the morning, there's just this skeleton draped, um, sort of like it's climbing out, you know, like it's... Um, <laughs> um, so she goes over to have a look at it and sort of it starts to slip back into the well again and she grabs the... so she gets the skull, <laughs> just like like a Hamlet moment or something, and just like... Um, yeah, and then that was how you got to meet people who work at the morgue and people who like are members of the um, the Pagamonsi Police Department, which shouldn't have its own department. It should like it shouldn't have its own morgue. That's actually not how it works um, in U in the UK. Obviously, it's, you know, but the town has its own kind of thing for for reasons. Um, but yeah, so you're going to meet a load of different characters, and that, uh, that all of that got cut. <laughs> Poor Lucretia. I imagine you may see cackling with mad delight when writing. <laughs> Accurate. Uh, but do you ever frighten yourself? Uh, so, okay, so this one is spoilers for the end of The Crows. So stop listening if you don't want to be spoiled. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and be as vague as possible. Well, um, so there's one concept that I use in The Crows that genuinely does scare me, um, and that is the idea of being infected with parasites or being drugged forcibly against your will um, when you know what it's going to do to you, but you can't do anything about it. You just have to sit there and have it happen to you, especially if it's, if it's like anything to do with your, like, brain and your cognitive faculties and you just you have to experience the loss of those in real in real time kind of thing like and you know what's happening and you, there's nothing you can do about it so there's a horror story that i read once as well oh, i didn't read it I, um it was like a the concept of it um that really freaked me out and it was um the idea of being locked in a dungeon somewhere with other prisoners and um, you know that they're deliberately putting parasites in your food and in the water, and you can see everybody around you dying of parasitical infection. So you're there, um, I think it's more horrifying because it was written in second person, so you're there sort of straining the water that they give you with dirty cloth or whatever it is you have on you, and picking through your food and trying to figure out if, if you know... Um, if you're safe to eat it and you're half starving and then you realize that no matter how careful you are no matter how careful you've been somehow you've already been infected and you're gonna die just like everybody else it doesn't matter now if anyone comes to rescue you it's too late and it's just that slow horror of that concept and i read that i or it must have been quite a young teen and that's just stuck with me as something that's genuinely quite frightening and horrifying so I did that a little bit at the end of the crows and I did it to Ricky because um I think he's the one that has he's he's so in control normally of what goes into his body and he like the only the thing that he's got going for him is his mind and to see him kind of being reduced 
I guess, to having no control after, which is kind of a, in the context, it's kind of a good thing. Well, not a good thing, but it's kind of like his comeuppance, I guess, in a way, um, in context. But, yeah, just, just that. Um, because that's basically what he's been doing to his parents. So having his parents do something similar to him. Um, and the idea of being, yeah, yeah, just... Yeah, I deeply dislike that. I, I wouldn't say it frightened me to write it, but it, it did horrify me. Because <laughs> that's one thing that does genuinely bother me a lot. Yeah. Great questions, guys. And you can see the transcript for those on my website. And I will see you next week. Um, so... Again, these are questions that um, I answered in December 2020. So, um, yeah, uh, with a little bit of an addendum uh, <laughs> for the new stuff that I'm working on. But, yeah, so um, they're on my YouTube channel as well. So if you uh, search for me on YouTube, the uh, my CM Rosen's channel, I've got little um, snapshots of me answering those questions live. Um, and then I've got like the uh, blog post that I've linked on my um, on my website so you can read those as well. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Um, and see you next week for chapter 18 of The Crows.